go. Um, I always encourage us to say something funny at the beginning, but I don't have anything funny. Um, this is good right here. <laughs> Welcome to Sanity Check. A podcast devoted to staying informed and sane in the time of Trump. <laughs> I'm Ben, and I'm joined today by Mike and Andrew. Hey. <laughs> We're recording on the evening of Wednesday, April 12th. Today is day 83 of The Resistance. Oh, God. If you enjoy what you hear, you can subscribe on iTunes, the Google Play Store, or at our website, sanitycheckpod.com. Um... Um, let's get into our best and worst of the week. So we know Andrew is going last this time, so he can't steal best and worst from my you or me, Mike. Do you want to go? Yeah. Um, sure. So for me, my worst is this new idea Trump appears to have had that he will threaten Democrats by – that he will threaten to make Obamacare fall apart – to force Democrats to deal with him on health care legislation, um, which is just a really messed up idea. Um, and the, so the quote here is, I don't want people to get hurt, Mr. Trump said. What I think should happen and will happen is the Democrats will start calling me and negotiating. So that's, that's gross. Um, and, I, you know, it also... If he's really willing to do that, it, there's a poten- there's a possibility that it could work, in the sense that Democrats would want to stop people from you know suffering and dying. Okay, but this is a quick part of the show. Um, now that is that is a pretty awful thing to even think. It's terrible. Yeah. Um, it is exactly how the mafia extracts uh, yeah. protection money. Well, and Donald Trump would uh, would have experience with that. Um, <laughs> And so then the good thing for me is that Bill O'Reilly went on a potentially permanent vacation. Uh, it would be fun to see him actually lose his show, finally. My my favorite part of his vacation is that he announced the uh, contest on the show's website where people could guess where he was going on his vacation, and he asked them to post it on social media. Now, I haven't uh. taken a look... But I can't imagine that that is going to end well. <laughs> no. No. So I, no. I hope that we have maybe it's by the end of the show. It's a legally binding survey, right? Yeah. Maybe by the end of the Bodie show we can McBoat come up with, face. With, some, uh, <laughs> with some good stuff there. So those are mine. All right. So for me, um, I guess I'm going to go with worst first. Um, I'm going to go this week with Tulsi Gabbard. Um, the congresswoman from Hawaii, who was the, the former voice, vice chairman of the DNC. She quit because she supported Bernie. But it turns out that she's really a pretty awful, terrible person. Um, and she's made like a couple secret trips originally on taxpayers' money to Syria to meet with Bashar al-Assad. Um, and I'm picking her for worse this week because uh, once again she defended him and, and, and in fact said that she thought there was a lot of reason to question whether or not he was behind the chemical weapons attacks that he was definitely behind. So she's pretty awful. So, so she gets my worst. Um, 
for my best, I'm going to go with something that we'll certainly be getting into more in the show, which is uh, the special election in Kansas that happened last night to fill the seat of Mike Pompeo, who is now director of the CIA. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll leave the, uh, the, the nuts and bolts of that to when we, when we get into it for real. But it was definitely by far my favorite thing that happened this week. So, Andrew, can you come up with anything original? Um, well, my favorite was going to be stealing you guys' things last week, but I think I've been voted down on that. So um, instead, I, I w- looked to the business world. Um, a couple of things I thought were interesting. Uh, worst, I will go with uh, what United did this week, um, where they're, uh, they overbooked a plane, as, as you do. Uh, and then they actually um, didn't overbook it. It was it was full exact is exactly as it should have been, but we can get into that if you want. Well, it was full enough that they needed to remove. Oh, that's right. Yeah, they didn't need um, to do anything. They they asked a, a a bunch of randomly selected people to leave the plane, whether they liked it or not, uh, so that a couple of their um, employees could travel to make a flight somewhere else. Uh, one the guy they one of the guys they picked uh, an older doctor gentleman uh, refused and was savagely beaten and brought out of the plane uh, totally against his will and looking pretty worse for wear Ble- um, bleeding all over the place uh, in the aftermath of this um, United stock went like through the floor uh, they lost over a billion dollars in worth and uh um and competitors are coming up with slogans like southwest we beat our competitors not you <laughs> well i think um they took a really bad situation and then they turned it into a complete debacle in part with their reaction to it sure which they could have they could have totally you know apologized and 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 uh but they, instead they, they so blamed it they on the poor, they blamed it on the poor guy yeah yeah there's so many things they could have done yeah um and it couldn't be happening to nicer people not the guy but everything that's happening to united um on the plus side i thought it was really exciting that um uh whether you agree with it or not uh tesla has overcome Ford to become uh, one of the biggest, uh, the biggest? Yes, Let's just say one of the biggest. The biggest biggest, in in our country, anyway. uh, American car maker, um, which is really exciting. This sort of happened in the aftermath of them uh, releasing, uh, what was it, opening their battery factory um, and beginning a big battery-making partnership with Panasonic, I think. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't know if the company will stay that high, but, uh, it's all, it's great to me to see companies that are investing so heavily in renewable type resources and, and non fossil fuel resources, uh, doing well and succeeding and pushing things forward. I think it'll definitely be all about how the model three does. When is, is that released this year or next year? I don't remember. I don't remember, I don't either. remember either. 
but they've they've also they've also released their solar tiles. Um, their solar tiles are super which cool. Are really interesting. Have you yeah. seen the way they look? They look great. Yeah, they look like tiles. They, right, and they've got them in like four or five different designs, depending yeah. on what kind of house style you have, and they look essentially exactly the same as any other roof tile, except they are little solar panels. Yeah, which is super cool. That's super cool. Plus, they can defrost your roof in the winter, <laughs> which is excellent. Which is both and good makes for better solar gathering. It makes for better solar gathering and fewer roofs caving in from snow being on them. Yep, that's right. So, that, so those are my best cool. worst. Um, all right, well, uh, that's pretty excellent. Um, so, in things that are bad, when we were recording last week. Uh, we had some breaking news, which were the um, the missile strikes um, that we we sent towards this one airfield in in Syria that is believed to have been the airfield that launched the the heinous uh, chemical weapons attack um, that Assad, despite what Tulsi Gabbard thinks and says, um, launched on his own um, people. Um, so. I think that we were pretty fatalistic, maybe is the way I would describe it, when we were on the air last time, in the way that we were describing this. And uh, I mean, I know that I was highly concerned about the ramifications and the fallout. um, And I think I've been quite surprised, I mean, not in a bad way exactly, um, at how little has happened as a result of these airstrikes. Here, anyway. Um, well, there, yeah, but it did, there, too. It sure did seem like they launched some missiles from that spot the next day. Well, they, they didn't launch mi- missiles, but they, yeah, they, they launched, they launched airplanes. airplanes. Because launched we, airplanes, didn't, but... we didn't take out the runway. We didn't <laughs> I mean, we may have blown up some planes, but we certainly didn't blow up all of them. Um, and uh, I mean, the objective was never to kill people. I don't, I don't think. I'm sure it was to destroy infrastructure. Um, but in part because of that, we warned the Russians, in particular, who were at that airbase ahead of time, and, uh, and presumably they told their Syrian buddies. Who were there, and so I, I think ver- basically very little damage was done um, when you consider that we shot 59 freaking cruise missiles. Well, and I think it's a good thing that we informed Russia. There's a reason why we informed Russia, which is to make sure we didn't accidentally kill a bunch of Russian soldiers. Yeah. But then, on the other hand, it, it sort of gets to the question of why what did... even are we doing? Because yeah. it, it, of one assumes that Russia would tell Syria, right? It's, you know, the Russians aren't going to be like, oh, we all have to go, but not, don't worry about it, and you guys all stay here. Right. You know, that's not going to happen. So, you know, they get, basically everyone gets to be evacuated, and they're launching strikes from it the next day. You know, I, I do think it's good to... There should be a ban on chemical weapons. So in in that sense, it is good to, for people to say, hold on, that's a bad thing, don't do that. But on the other hand, it's not clear. If it doesn't have any practical consequences, 
it undercuts that symbolic case. Right. What, considering that there has been no follow-up, as far as I can tell, in almost any way, militarily, diplomatically, politically, other than a few barbs sent back and forth between us and Russia, what was actually the point of these airstrikes? It, they did not seemingly affect the ability of the Syrians to kill their own people. I'm sure that we didn't destroy any chemical weapons. Well, and related to this, there's there was that recent article that suggested um, that Trump was influenced by Ivanka's response. In other words, it was an emotionally driven decision rather than a strategically driven decision. No, of course, decision. we don't know if that's actually true. This is, no, this is the story. that's good. That's a good point. But even if that specific is not true, it, based on how Trump is, it wouldn't surprise me if he had no. a more visceral sort of whatever we we could be, you know, to put it in a positive term, intuitive, you know. Um, but not a, he didn't sit down and think, okay, what's a good overall strategy for the region and what can I do? I think he thought, actually, I think that he saw an opportunity to do something strong and militaristic that people would like him for and he did it and didn't I don't they think spend it's more complicated didn't they spend two days agonizing over the over how they were going to do this and what what they were going to do i'm sure was, he, uh, trump didn't spend almost any time agonizing i mean it, <laughs> well, it's in, yeah. it's entirely possible that the secretary of defense um general mattis spent a fair amount of time agonizing over exactly how to carry out the strike but um I mean, there was there was forty eight hours or so between the chemical weapons attack and our, our response. Certainly, I guess reportedly of frantic phone calls, but it, that doesn't mean it was Trump's. Well, phone I'm call. sure the That's military true. spent a lot of. I, I'm sure the military had these plans drawn up already. I mean, that that would be normal for for there to be an existing suite of responses in case of or various pretty, pretty much happening. anything right? yeah. i mean and assad has used chemical you know this exact scenario has has happened before for the record in 2013 when this happened previously that was actually a far far worse chemical attack that that i mean i don't mean to minimize what assad did in this case at all i mean he slaughtered 200 people including women and children and babies um you know and 200 people is a lot of people um, but in 2013, when he did it, he killed over 1,500 people. Yeah, and at that time, Obama responded by launching some cruise missiles. It was, Wait. It was very similar. Yeah, we he launched some cruise missiles. Um, but I was thinking more of the he he had a he made a deal with Assad. Well, that was the ultimate to thing dispose that happened. of chemical weapons. Right. So that was when so Obama announced the so-called red line. And Assad crossed it. No, so, I don't want to get too much into like what Obama did. You know, I don't mean to take us down that tangent, but but what but what's, but what what is interesting there is that reportedly um, Obama was ready to have a, a stronger military response than just um, shooting some missiles in, um, and basically was blackmailed out of it by Iran, who uh, they were secretly negotiating with at the time over their nuclear program. And Iran said that it it was a deal breaker if Obama went into Syria. 
And so that was one of the major reasons why we backed off of going into Syria. And then we struck that deal with Assad and the Russians to um, collect the 1,300 uh, metric tons of chemical weapons and dispose of them. Though clearly Assad kept some. Yeah, and I've seen some people saying, you know, this proves that that deal was a mistake and didn't accomplish its goal. To me, any destruction of chemical weapons is a good thing. You know, the fact that he retained some to use. Incidentally, I think it was a strategic blunder for Assad to do this. To do this sarin attack. Um, I agree. Because, you know, he he could have just... None of this needed to be happening, and he's brought all this attention and we we've basically let him drop you know barrel bombs and other conventional weapons uh to murder half a million people with zero response and he yeah. could have kept on doing that pretty much with impunity i think um yeah well i mean what there haven't been any consequences until there was this gas attack and it you know it does raise the question of you know, and I, as you say, Mike, I, I do, I do think and agree that you know it should be kind of a global guideline that chemical weapons and biological weapons and other weapons of mass destruction are illegal and you know unacceptable and so on. But at the end of the day, what is the moral difference between? slaughtering your own citizens with chemical weapons and with gigantic regular bombs instead. Well, we need a World War I veteran on the show to to really get into that issue. You know, I think... Or a Kurd. Or... Well, all I know about that is any, everybody who has experienced firsthand, you know, historically, has been like, whatever else we do, we have to make sure we ban gas, get, using militar, militarized gas like that. Um, so, you know, I, I do think there's a difference, I mean, it, but this is what's difficult about it, because in the end, the people are still dead, whether they were killed with conventional or biological or chemical weapons. And it, I don't know. This is what, I'm not sure if it's going to teach anyone any lessons what Trump did. No, I don't think it will. And But I, I think the fact that we're having this discussion is actually illustrative of the point that... Um, it, there's it wasn't even necessarily there wasn't necessarily anything wrong with having a military response to the chemical weapons attack um you know there were certainly plenty of people in the Obama administration in 2013 who wanted him to have a much stronger response to Assad's previous chemical weapons attack um and there are plenty of those pe- same people who are applauding the fact that we fired these missiles now. But I think the issue is that it really only works if it is part of a broader strategy and policy. Right. Well, and as we've seen following this attack, I've been, you know, in real time, you can watch different members of the Trump administration are saying different things about what the strategy is, um, where you have... Sean Spicer saying that we would respond to any further use of chemical weapons or barrel bombs. You know, he mentioned right, that, specifically. which you mentioned earlier, yeah. which they use all the time. And then he had and to then, walk that back. Know, but Shortly afterwards, you had Mattis saying, there is no difference. We, we haven't changed our policy. 
So they've just been all over the place. Um, I do also want to quickly follow up on something you said earlier. I'm looking it up here, and it, it, from what I'm reading, it we didn't use cruise missiles in on in 2013. Oh, did we not? Um, the United well, what I'm looking at here says the United States reportedly planned to launch up to 100 cruise missiles, but after several days, uh, he sought congressional authorization, right. and that was. And they and Congress, as they do, it's like when you turn the light on in a room full of cockroaches. Yeah. They all were just like, "Oh, yeah, sorry, we have a, we have a meeting. I can't, I can't take up." And so they didn't do anything. And so we didn't do a military response, but we did respond by destroying chemical weapons. Which, to me, that is a good instinct, much more than just blowing it up. Because, you know, how many chemical what? whatever chemical weapons capability Assad had previously, he still has today, and including the ability to launch the airplanes. So I don't think it's possible to make a big difference if you're just haphazardly acting and then your attention wanders off to something else. It is notable that many of those same cockroaches are were uh, praising the, the attack that we made this time around. Yeah, that, so that I really had an interest. I had a, not interesting. I had a strong response to that. What did you guys think of of the way Trump blew, fired some missiles at a, at some? Someone wrote. I saw a writer who was like, "We blew up a cafeteria." You know, like we fired some missiles at some secondary buildings at a launch site in Syria, and everybody just lost their minds with with joy and praise. And we had Fareed Zakaria. Was this yes. the, was this the one where Fareed yeah. Zakaria was like he's the president now? It was basically Van Jones Part Two. It was so weird. And you had Brian Williams go on this totally bizarre, this creepy, really cre- like, like weirdly sexual. Yeah, it was masturbatory. It was it was gross. You know, he's he was quoting Leonard Cohen song lyrics about the beauty of the weapons and he was just going on and on about how beautiful the weapons were and it was I, I was actually watching live when he was saying it and I was just like what the fuck I mean it was extremely strange uh, Andrew did you see this no I didn't see any of it yeah so as Ben is saying Brian Williams was was <laughs> doing his reporting and he said um he literally quoted a song where he was like, I am guided by the beauty of our weapons. And he kept talking about how beautiful it was, these missile launches. It was really odd. Meanwhile, what I saw was, uh, I guess, a report from uh, a Russian asset, like survey of what happened, basically laughing at us for uh, blowing up a cafeteria and, and like one plane that was already in the shop. Where did you see that? I can't remember. That would be interesting, you know, because one of, it is an interesting question how this is all playing in Russia. Well, I mean, you have to always keep in mind that the media in Russia is controlled by the state, so it's basically going to play however Putin wants it to play. <laughs> sure, but then, I mean, yeah, and, and, and it's interesting to see, but also their report turns out to have been somewhat more accurate than ours. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't, well, I think that our journalistic reporting was fairly accurate. That was, yeah, sure. What was not so accurate was the reporting from the Trump administration itself. I mean, you had, I think my favorite was, did you guys see the, the, the photograph that the White House released 
of the Trump team down at at Mar-a-Lago where they were because he was meeting with um, with President Xi from China, and it, they were clearly going for a photograph that aped the Situation Room photograph of President Obama and uh, yeah, the Vice President yeah, and, and Hillary with Bin Laden, and um, there were some really odd things about this photo, and one of them was that all the chairs were gilded with fake gold, but um, the the oddest to me were the who who the people were sitting in this room, and among them there was the Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, and the Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross. It's like why? I mean, Syria is one of our top trade right. partners. Like, why are they that. sitting in the makeshift Situation Room as we are bombing another country? Like, what what are they there for? And then Wilbur Ross goes out of the room and he, talking to some reporter who's there to cover the the meeting with President Xi, and he announces that during this strike, we destroyed 20% of the entire Syrian air force. And it's like... I didn't hear that. Yeah, he said that. He said That's this. so stupid. I, I've, I've heard the audio yeah. of him saying it. I mean, so... But not only was he wrong, but he was sitting in the room when presumably... You know the Joint Chief and Secretary Mattis and McMaster and you know the people who actually knew what was going on explained to the dummies like him what had just happened. And he, I'm surprised that we didn't let Xi Jinping come and watch. I mean, you know, it's, it's like a fun party. Well, he probably was watching. You know, via, yeah, on his <laughs> on, you know via some. You know. He was watching on the jumbotron at right. the at Mar a Lago. -Lago. <laughs> he just wandered past Trump's dinner table. <laughs> yeah. You know, right? Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Can you? I I, I don't think that he uh, he he let Trump do a power handshake on him either. Well, but I mean, the point of what you were saying earlier, or what I take from what you were saying earlier, is just yet again another piece of evidence that this was not a carefully thought out you know, strate yeah. strategic decision where he got got counsel from every, all the right people and, and thought about all the options. And it's... Well, right. I think it's really dangerous how just to weave it all together. What we had was something happened. With, there was a gas attack, and it was attracting a lot of condemnation, and he noticed that, and it was an opportunity. So he did something militaristic, and everyone really loved it. Like, congressional people the media. were praising him. The media was was like Cable news falling all over themselves to celebrate how great and powerful and, and beautiful it was, and I, I'm afraid that that you know what kind of pattern is that setting us up for in the future? The, the Syria is not going to suddenly become a peaceful, you know, Syria is going to remain a problem area. Yeah, I mean, and, and one of the most interesting responses came from. Uh, the the real brain trust of the Trump family, Eric Trump. Um, so mean. Who, uh, Rick Wilson, the uh, former Bush White House aide, was on TV last night, and he said that uh, the only thing he would ask Eric Trump's advice on was hair gel, which I thought was appropriate. But anyway, Eric Trump <laughs> said that that um, the strike on Syria should prove once and for all that there is no tie between the Trumps and Russia. Because if there were, then why would we be shooting missiles at their good buddies, um, Syrians? 
And that's another one of my big fears is that they did this for that reason. Right. And so that that yeah. has become, you know, uh, a kind of a, a, a mini conspiracy theory. It's definitely helpful to Trump and to Putin if everyone stops thinking there's this connection between them. And it, you know, and even if it, this was not planned in any way between Trump and the Russians, uh, it's still entirely believable that uh, Trump and his inner circle would think to themselves, hey, um, this would be a real nice secondary benefit of shooting some missiles at Syria would be that it might get people off our back a little bit on the whole uh, Russia thing. And that's pretty disturbing. Um, So that... Tillerson's in Russia now having a pretty frosty meeting with them. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I'm not quite sure exactly how to read that whole situation. Me neither, but it wasn't on our outline, and so we probably shouldn't talk no. about it. No. <laughs> I, I'm inclined to not have, yeah, I mean, not have too much to think about it. I, you know, there was potentially just a major incident with them, and I feel like that's a good time for the Secretary of State to go over there and maybe talk. Maybe if the Secretary of State was, like, competent. And a, or, or, or the a, actual a Secretary diplomat. of State. Yeah. Like, um, this trip has also been planned for quite some time. Yeah, I remember at first I was thinking, it seemed like Russia was trying to downplay it. It seemed like they had Medvedev making the statements about, you know, he's like, oh, this is horrible, our dear ally Syria, which, and that translation, this is fine, like, we don't care. Because it wasn't Putin saying anything. But it seems like they've gotten a little bit more... Testy. Testy about it. Yeah, they've been saying, like, well, no one can prove Syria even did anything. But, But also, before we close on Syria, I just have to personally say... I was so sure his approval rating was going to go ah, yeah. like, way up following that missile strike, and it it didn't. No, it it yeah. didn't go in either direction. It just stayed it, it where was, it was. Yeah. So and now I was so sure that it would. You you know, I was just expecting based on past experience that military action would you'd get like a rally around the flag effect. And you were certainly right in terms of the reaction from Congress and the media. Yeah. Um, but I. I guess I guess it's heartening that it didn't happen. Yeah, I think it's heartening to me, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I, I feel like part of the reason is that uh well, you've got some of of the really nationalist populist anti-globalist sentiment. Yeah, that's an angle that actually is really interesting. Some of his most fervent supporters really hate this. Yeah. Yeah. Like uh, like a lot, and in fact, many of them switched their allegiance to Tulsi Gabbard, including <laughs> uh, Richard Spencer, noted neo-Nazi, and um, uh, David Duke, another noted uh, neo-Nazi, have all said that they would uh, back uh, Tulsi Gabbard in a prospective 2020 presidential run. Um, I wonder why. Um but yeah, no. It, so I, I think that played a certain part, and then I think another part is just a general, general confusion, because no one has any idea what the hell is going on since there wasn't any actual follow up. Right. I mean, I, I feel like the reaction might have been different if we had launched a war subsequent to, which is what we were afraid of. To these. That's what strikes. we. 
we're that's what we were thinking about last week. Well, certainly, as a possibility. I didn't really think that there was going to be like a full scale ground invasion. I was more concerned about uh, Russian retaliation. A very concerning thing. Um, so anyway, before we left the Syria topic, yeah. I felt it was my responsibility to say no, something about that. Well, it, it's interesting though, as well, and you know, we'll, we should see as uh, as time goes on. You know, over the next week, depending on what happens, whether or not this pattern continues. I did read Assad launching airstrikes from that same base as very much him being like, that was like a I don't care, you. I'll do whatever I want, yeah. Yeah, that was, I, was, I was a fuck you, and I mean, you. what's interesting is that Trump himself has basically said nothing since the little terrible speech he gave last Thursday night announcing the missile strikes. Um, the only time he has chimed in is one tweet where he uh, really uh, whinily defended not having blown up the runway. Yeah, that was a really good look for him. It was very strong to be like, <laughs> you don't understand, you never hey, blow up the runway. Runways are small. Uh, They're hard to hit. I mean, honestly, my reaction to that was um, I was concerned that he would feel that his manhood was being diminished and that he needed to do something even more crazy in response. But thankfully that hasn't happened, at least yet. Um, in other things that are encouraging... Oh, I can... Wait, what about other signs that Trump's base of support is eroding? That's an even better segue. I just saw it. Yeah, because this is to turn to the Kansas special election yes. mm-hmm. for Mike Pompeo's seat, where the Republicans... Based on history, you would expect them to win by large double digits. It is digit a very margins. red district. Yeah, extremely red, very safe. I think Trump, I don't remember the number, but it was like Trump was plus 25 Trump, or something. Trump was plus 27. 27. Pompeo yeah, a, was plus 31. And in the just, special in election, the outcome was that the Republican was plus 7, if I'm remembering that correctly. Yes. Yeah, you got it. And so, a guy named Ron Estes. The Republican won the election, and I've been seeing a lot of people who are really disappointed and blaming the DNC for not winning this election, but... Um, this was never really a... Well, I mean, I you know, I'm with Howard Dean. I feel like you should contest every election. I do too. Sure. But this was a tough one. You know, this, this, <laughs> was is, like... this, is not, this is not a special election that people were really looking forward to. Uh, like months out, like people have been focusing on the special election in Georgia in the sixth district there yeah. for months since before Sessions was even right. Nominated. And that is a more winnable one than the Kansas one. I think that what was particularly notable about this Kansas special election in the run-up was that it was the Republicans who started to freak out in the week yeah. um, ahead of time, and they dumped a hundred thousand dollars in, and they got Trump and Pence and so on to to make robocalls um and the democrats did not raise any money as mike alluded to and didn't focus on the race basically at all and even so um still there was you know a 20 plus point swing um in the district from just a couple of months ago 
And that's pretty crazy, particularly considering that special elections tend not to favor Democrats because obviously they're pretty dependent on turnout and turnout tends to to favor um, Republicans. Well, and you know, it's funny, the margin actually makes me wonder. I mean, there's, there's I see the strategic decision on the DNC's part not to heavily contest this seat. Um but I do kind of wonder if it might have been winnable. I mean, it was so much closer than anyone than I thought it was going to be if they had contested it. But um, I mean, it sort of doesn't really matter. Um, it's a very good sign for Democrats. Sure. I mean, how this came out. Obviously, this is not going to happen. But if there were a uniform twenty-point swing in the House, then yeah. in twenty eighteen. Uh, I think I read today that Democrats would pick up something like 120 seats. Oh yeah, it would be, be a bloodbath. It would bath. be a very noticeable. I mean, <laughs> right now I believe, and maybe someone can double check this because this is important. Um, but I believe Democrats are down 23 seats in the House, or something like that. Something like that. Something where the number you just said would definitely take care of oh, that problem. <laughs> big time. Like you know, not you know. And so the point being that you don't, we don't need a 20-point swing. You know, we need no. like a six- or seven-point swing, and we can take the House back in um, 2018. And well, the other thing it shows me... Oh, I'm No, sorry. go ahead. The other thing it shows me is that um, Trump's base of support is not that rock-solid for him. You know, like, people... This is... Well, I mean, we just saw it. He had an election, and he had a certain margin, and then his, the guy in his party, Trump, made calls on this guy's behalf. Pence made I think met Pence. A bunch of higher-ups made calls. And for whatever reason, the numbers were very different. And so it, it's a hopeful sign because it shows that at least some people who were on the Trump train now find themselves less on the Trump train. Well, and of course, Trump is not going to be on the ballot in 2018 either. No. So you you, you know you're not going to have people who just for whatever reason ardently love Trump and will show up and then just vote Republican just because. No, but you you will have a lot of people who ardently despise Trump. You will. Yeah. Like all the Democrats. You know, you're having a very motivated out party. I I think that we maybe should devote an entire episode to this at some point because there's no way that we could do it justice now. But I would love to have a discussion about what we think the right tactic for the midterm election should be for Democrats. You know, can we take the House back and do well in the Senate races by running essentially a negative anti-Trump campaign? Or, you know, should we try to actually persuade people about Democratic progressive policies? Or is there some happy medium? I mean, yeah, we could talk about that for a really long time. Yeah. Um, it's, there's a lot there. It's very interesting. I don't know what the answer is, yeah. Uh, I don't know either. I think to bring... I mean, to focus on what we know right now, it certainly seems like with that... Using one point of evidence, which is not enough, but the Kansas race suggests that Trump's unpopularity is helping... Democrats in elections, and it is also unprecedented this early into a presidential term. He's very unpopular, and his first time in office has been going extremely badly. 
Um, you know, he was not able to repeal and or replace Obamacare. His executive orders, I think, you know, he started out with such fanfare signing these executive orders. He's, that sort of trailed off a little bit. Um, I don't know whether they signed all the ones they intended to sign or if he, it wasn't going the way he thought it would go. And they kept getting overruled by the courts and drawing these massive protests. But, you know, he's looking ineffective. And he's I, so if those factors are helping, you could see an argument for just a totally negative campaign where you just you just say, you know, hi, I'm Democrat, whatever, whatever. And. I'm running against this Republican, and he likes Trump, and then just you know tie them to Trump, and then lay into Trump, and let that do the work for you. I think in the- you know positive campaigning always sounds nicer in theory, but from what I understand about campaign tactics, negative is there's a reason campaigns always go negative, and that's because it works. And I am mostly interested in winning. Yeah. And also you'd have to adjust it for various places. The nice thing for Democrats is we also actually have all the correct policy that is true. answers to the problems. So you know you don't have to choose one or the other. So this technically is not actually the only data point. There was a special election last week in California as well, um, which had a plus 19 swing. The one to replace the new attorney general of California, Xavier... Sarah, but I don't know which district that is. Well, so how did it come out? Uh, in, in any case, the... it was a plus 19 differential from November. In favor of Democrats. In favor of Democrats. So um, awfully similar to what happened in Kansas. Now, I'm not sure how much of a direct comparison you can make between California and Kansas. Um, they're obviously extremely different places. Um, but it's still nice that things went in that direction. I, I think that the the biggest harbinger will be next week when um, when the special election in the 6th district in Georgia happens. Um, because that is a race that Democrats are contesting really hard. Um, yeah, that's, that's one I'm paying a lot of attention to, and I'm really hoping we can win. Yeah, now I, I don't want to set expectations too high. I don't think that there's actually been a single poll that has had the Democrat John Ossoff um, over 50%, which is needed to avoid a runoff in Georgia. I suspect that we actually won't win this one, but it'll be very close. But he almost certainly will make it into the runoff. Um, and then that will be very interesting. Uh, I have no idea what will happen then. But, I mean, he's raised an unbelievable amount of money, like 7 or $8 million dollars. Um, and is a, a charismatic uh, young guy. And um, I, I do think that all of this demonstrates that that Howard Dean style, you know, we should contest every single House seat in 2018. We should raise money. We should sink resources. Um, we should campaign for every seat in 2018. There is there's no seat that is completely out of the realm of possibility with a president who is this unpopular. I agree with that. I think that's the right strategy. Yeah. And that would go a long way to uh, taking things back by uh, taking back a, 
uh, chamber of the of Congress, and we're a hell of a lot more likely to take back the House than we are the Senate. So, well, and there, yes, that's true, and we only need one. Yes, once you have control of the House, you can investigate all kinds of stuff and block terrible laws. It would be a really good thing if we could get the House in twenty eighteen. Um, the other, you know, th- this might be best left for a uh, 2018 election special of the podcast. Um, the, the other place I think we're going to really need to focus in 2018 are on the uh, governor's races uh, because I totally agree with the that. map is laid out really well for us. Um, and that's something conserv- the Republicans have been a lot smarter about than the Democrats is focusing on those local, you know, governor races and state house races. And we have, you know, the Senate's going to be really tough. The House was going to be really tough, but presidents always suffer setbacks in their midterm elections. Well, I think one of the biggest benefits of going really hard after every seat in the House is that, you know, you know inevitably you're not going to win all those seats. But um, if, you, if you really try to contest all those seats, you're going to end up recruiting um, young... Uh, energetic yeah. candidates, some of whom will win, which is great, um, and some of them won't, but will have gotten involved in the political process and could potentially run for um, local time. positions or the next time um, and so on. It, it would go, I think, a long way into creating the next generation of Democratic politicians. and Which we really yeah. need. You know, where they aren't allowed to have real elections is Russia. That is true. And that's nice. um, it, it's funny that you would say that, Mike, because well, it just occurred to me for no reason because <laughs> Russia, despite the best attempts of the Trump administration to get us to forget about it, was back in the news in a big way. Um, so the Washington Post reported yesterday that Carter Page, the former advisor of some sort to the Trump campaign um, has been the subject since sometime in 2016 of a FISA warrant allowing surveillance of him by the NSA and other members of the American intelligence apparatus. Um, Now, this is a really big deal, and I think it's important to explain for a moment the conditions which allow for American intelligence to spy on an American citizen. Because it takes a lot. Yes. It's a really rare uh, thing. So basically, the FBI or law enforcement needs to go to a FISA court and convince the judge that they have a significant amount of evidence that demonstrates that the American citizen is acting as the agent of a foreign power um, and is doing things that are illegal and against the interests of America, potentially in a treasonous type way. Um, and you know, unless you're doing that, it is straight up illegal for uh, any American law enforcement or intelligence agency at the federal level to spy on you. Um, this is not at all the same thing as the incidental collection of Americans on wiretaps, which is the thing that Devin Nunez was uh, crying uh, about 
Um, you think it was the incidental earlier. collection on this wiretap? I guess we, uh, we may never no. know. <laughs> no, because this wasn't incidental. This was this was a direct warrant on Carter Page, American citizen. But whoever he's talking to would be incidental. Uh, but it, potentially, if he was talking to another American, I suppose that's yeah. possible. Um, so uh, I, this is really notable for a variety of reasons. One, as we've already said, just that it's extremely rare. Um, two, it means that American law enforcement, including the intelligence community, has had evidence for quite some time now that Carter Page has been an active spy, if you will, for the Russians, presumably working on their behalf and on behalf of the Trump campaign against the interests of the Hillary Clinton campaign and you know, American democracy in general. Um, and that is a really big deal. Um, it is also notable um, to me the timing um, of this leak. Uh, the leak, it should be mentioned, um, is a big deal in and of itself because um, the revelation of the existence even of a FISA warrant is a big-time felony. Um, so it is, it's not a small thing to even reveal this. And in fact, this is the, the reason that Devin Nunez, the erstwhile chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, has had to recuse himself from the investigation uh, into Trump and Russia is because he revealed during his Keystone Cops routine uh, the existence of a, a number of FISA warrants related to this case. And that was revealing classified information, and there's now an ethics investigation into him for having done so. So it's it's not a small matter to even have revealed this. But what I think is even more interesting is the fact that this was revealed just a couple of days after um, these airstrikes in Syria and um, the Trump-Russia investigation getting shifted somewhat um, off the front page of newspapers and cable news and uh, and this fawning coverage, at least initially, f uh, from the news media about these attacks. It seems as if every time something like that happens, uh, most notably in the past, I think, was after the um, the address that Trump gave to the joint session of Congress, when um, everyone and their, and their uncle was talking about how presidential Trump was all of a sudden, um, and then some big uh, Russia bombs hit. It, it seems that the intelligence community has a vested interest in the situation and they don't want to allow this story to go away. And so every time there is the possibility that it might, they leak a, a big news story. It's sort of like the, the counterpoint to when you know, every time Trump would get himself in trouble in the run-up to the election, WikiLeaks would dump a whole new set of emails from uh, from Hillary's email server or about Hillary's email server. So you're saying there's like a that when that pattern is suggestive. I don't know if it's, it seems like there are factions, right? Because it was also there was a group in the intelligence community that helped Trump during the election. Yeah, it seems mostly there, the theory anyway, is that it was a, a faction in the FBI, um, specifically the New York office, Yeah, and that the rest of the intelligence community has been fairly on the ball. 
but but yeah, I think you're. I think the way you characterize it is is right. And then, I mean, I, I know that other Russia news has there's been more information about Paul Manafort, but that's not really a leak in the way that you're talking about. No, no. I mean, uh, certainly not of the, nearly the same level. Um, so what Mike's referring to there um, are some new reports yesterday and today um, about Paul Manafort's financial ties to pro-Russia groups in Ukraine and in, in Russia itself um, that he has previously lied about um, and has now kind of come clean on. Um, and today he actually started the process of registering as a foreign agent, very similarly to the way that Michael Flynn did uh, retroactively um, uh, uh, in his case um, with regards to Turkey. Um, so uh, We should keep track of the number of Trump people who have said they had no association or no connection or received no money or whatever from Russia and then have to actually clarify that. It's it's getting up there. It's, it's a long well, I guess I mean, so. Yeah, is it all of them? Well, I mean... They don't Michael have sessions had, yet. <laughs> Michael Flynn had to resign. Well, I mean, sessions had sessions. to... Re- are you kidding? He had to recuse oh, himself Sessions from... was oh, the one right. where Al Franken was like, did anybody meet with Russia? And Sessions like, what are you talking about? I never met with Russia. Yeah. Um, we've got... Um, we know... We, we know Manafort is just... Right, Manafort? Kushner, Kushner right, is, is filling out new security clearance forms because... He forgot to mention all of the contacts that he had with Russian intelligence and the uh, CEOs of large Russian corporations when he was filling out his initial FBI security clearance forms. Who approves those? Can they deny him? Sure. They can deny anybody. He is apparently operating under a provisional security clearance at the moment because he informed the FBI through his lawyer that he had uh, left some stuff out. But yes, they they can. Um, th- uh, that Evan Watnick Cohen guy, who is Ezra uh, Cohen Watnick, Ezra, yeah, that that guy. Um, he um, he was didn't get the job that that Michael Flynn wanted him to get because the CIA uh, turned down his uh, his security clearance. Huh. So I mean, he has a security clearance, but he doesn't have the level of security clearance that he applied for. What was interesting about that was that it happened after Mike Pompeo had been sworn in, and Mike Pompeo actually signed off on his not getting the security <laughs> clearance and would not particularly explain it to uh, Trump. <laughs> you know, it's funny. You're. It's. I feel like you're pushing. What you're talking about makes me want to segue into our next topic. Which is the Let's White House staffing adventures? Bannon, Spicer. I mean, they. It's you know, you, you talked earlier, Mike, about how um, poorly the first eighty odd days of the Trump administration have gone. I, I really bad. don't. I don't think that can be stated <laughs> strongly enough. I mean, I I think it's fairly safe to say that this has been the worst start to a presidency in modern American history um, in terms of achievements. I mean, I... Yeah, the achievements are pretty light. We gotta be on the worst... We gotta, like, looking for a worst stretch category. Yeah, I mean... Not just start. Like, this is rough. Well, but 
it, that's certainly true, but the, like the start is almost even more impressively bad because <laughs> this should be like the theoretical honeymoon period. Yes, yeah, starts are usually the very best. Like by this right. point, Obama had passed the stimulus, the Lily Ledbetter Equal Pay Act, a whole like a whole ton of other yeah. stuff had had really started the process towards the Affordable Care Act, um, and I mean presidents j- typically get a lot of leeway in their first hundred days. Um, to to try to do whatever uh, they want to get done. Well, and I think the failure is connected to you know. So so as we you know in our outline here, our fourth topic is Sean Spicer and Steve Bannon, a story about White House staffing. That would be a, a great buddy comedy, don't you think? Oh my God! Oh boy! Um, <laughs> but you know, I think so. What happened with Bannon is Bannon is is. In his position is threatened, right? He he started out as Trump's, you know, con, right hand man, or really, in a lot of our opinions, the the sort President of power Bannon. behind the throne. Power, yeah, President Bannon, yeah. and he was the Rasputin. It seems the like the accumulating failure. You know, Trump needs to find somebody to blame for it, and it seems like it's Bannon is ending up in the crosshairs. Well, I think Bannon made a real strategic error. By, by getting being into a, a horrible fight. monster. Well, there is that. There is that. But he, I, in addition, picking a fight with um, Jared Kushner, I don't think was a strong yeah. move on his part. No, yeah. Kushner's connected to Ivanka, who is the most important Trump shining person. star. Yeah. Well, and just to, so let's yeah, but I think it's interesting too. He picked a fight with Kushner. He called him a Democrat. Right. Well, he called because Kushner is. Uh, it, great buddies with Gary Cohn, who is mm-hmm. Trump's uh, like big financial advisor. And in theory, Gary Cohn actually is a Democrat. Well, and until a few years ago, Trump was a Democrat. I mean, not a few, but well, until like... You and know, Jared Kushner almost certainly was. I'm sure all of them were there. New York, I mean, I doubt they thought about it that much, but that's sort of the default in that social... Well, they had all given a lot of money to Democrats. Well, sure. Um... But, and then the other thing about Kushner that Bannon doesn't like, in addition to that, is he's uh, – well, Bannon would say he's a globalist, but we might just say he's one well, of the chosen words, people. Right. Well, it, it, it is ironic, and I, I feel that I can say this as a, as a person of the Jewish persuasion myself, uh, that if Bannon goes down, which is looking like a, a real possibility at the moment, he's going to be brought down by a couple of Jewish bankers. <laughs> oh man! Um, just like he always said, yeah, you're <laughs> um, right. He he was right all along. I'm not sure. I feel like he's already lost a lot of prestige and a lot of position. I'm not sure he's ever really going to get fired. Um, well, the White House is in a tough spot, I think, because I, I think it's pretty clear that they would like to get rid of him or at least heavily marginalize him. Wait, why but, is that? That's not clear to me. Who's they? I think Trump. I mean, have, have well, you Trump seen? today he he vocally did not support. Did, like he didn't give him a vote two, of confidence. Two consecutive interviews today. Yeah, right. right. Does, uh, does, Andrew, you want to find the find those quotes? He was like, "Steve is a guy who works for me." It was worse than that. Actually, was he was yeah. like, "I like Steve, but you have to remember that you know he was he wasn't with our campaign almost until the end, and I'm my own strategist." So it was Which basically is like, awfully you know, similar to what he said about Michael Flynn right before it's like, he fired Steve's him. a nice guy to hang out. Well, with Michael Flynn, he was like, people are being so unfair to Michael Flynn, so unfair that I had to fire him. 
Well, but Sean Spicer said that Michael Flynn had only been with the campaign a short time, which he also said about Paul Manafort. <laughs> In geological terms. Right. So I got from the, from the uh, partisan Democrat publication, the New York Post, uh, <laughs> I like Steve, but you have to remember he was not involved in my campaign until very late. I had already beaten all the senators and all the governors, and I didn't know Steve. I'm my own strategist, and it wasn't like I was looking to change strategies because I was facing crooked Hillary. So I am he... so excited for Steve Bannon to get fired because that's just – I mean I know – it's not going to solve anything, but that's going to be really satisfying. Well, then there's also the idea that Trump is saying that he didn't know Steve Bannon, the publisher of Breitbart, is a really a complete lie. But we even, don't even if true, it's it's just bad in a different way because right. he's like either you knew him or you just hired someone you didn't know to be your campaign manager. Well, he did essentially do that with Kellyanne Conway. He, he did, did yeah. I mean, Trump never knows what he's doing, but usually he tries to pretend that he and, knows. What and he's he doing. hired Paul Manafort, who he didn't know, who offered to come work for him for free, because that wasn't sketchy at all. Paul Manafort seemed awfully eager to work for Trump, um, it, it, possibly because he was, uh, you know, a Russian spy. <laughs> the the problem that I see though for the White House is if they get rid of Bannon. I can't imagine Bannon would take it very well, right? You're, well, if, oh, you're he's saying a, if he's as effective a counterpunch as he is a punch, then... Uh... Well, he does control... I Presumably, he still controls Breitbart, right? I think that's a problem for Trump if Breitbart turns against him. Right. Because it splits his base... His yeah, there's he has loyalty problems all over the place. Cause, I mean, that's a big it's a big potential issue for him. Well, he's not delivering on any of the things he promised to do. He's listening to all these Jewish people. He's bombing Syria when he promised he wouldn't do. You know, where the are the coal right jobs? Is, what? Where are the coal jobs? Yeah, where are the well, the alt right doesn't care about that, but they're like, where are we are? He is delivering on the white supremacy, like giving police more breadth to just kill anybody they want to. Jeff Sessions is working on that. But the that's CEOs sort of are the pretty only happy area. with his deregulations. They think they are. I don't know. I feel like well, the cycle that happens with that is usually they they everyone gets together to learn a really sad lesson about what unfettered markets actually do. And then CEOs get about five years of being like, okay, fine, we'll behave and then they are like give us all the money again. But while they're having their sad lesson, they're enjoying their um, big balloon severance payment. Yeah, meanwhile, regular people are getting, becoming homeless and losing all their money. This is, you know, see also the dot-com crash, the 2008 crash. Pretty much every crash. But we should also mention in this gumbo of failure that is the White House, um, Sean Spicer just really... Sean Spicer didn't have a good week. He found new new depths of personal f- failure when he talked about how Hitler never used chemical weapons. And then he clarified... So, for those of us... For those in the audience who don't know, Hitler gassed, like, millions of, of people in, the, in World War II, and he's famously a great user of chemical weapons against people. So... Um, it's something referred to as the Holocaust. Yeah, it's uh, you, yeah, Google it. Um, but he then clarified to say that he didn't use it against his own people, but he brought them to the Holocaust centers, which just right there is enough to 
you should just stop. There, there's so much to unpack. You should never talk again. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's like... I mean, it, no one has ever heard the term Holocaust Centers before. No, and uh, it doesn't sound good. It's not a good term. I mean, if anything, it sounds sort of like a museum. Or like a uh, shopping center. Like, yeah. you know, it's like, <laughs> oh, I gotta go down to the Holocaust Center today and, like drop off my Jewish friend. You know, it's like, it's it doesn't terrible. make any sense. It's not right. I mean, it sounds like something that, you know, a horrible anti-Semite would say. It sure does. And well, and also the part of it where he's, he's accepting one of Hitler's key contentions, which is that the Jews weren't his people. Yeah, that was, that was something that Which I'm was, not sure he intentionally did. No. But if you look at the words that he said in, in the order... That he, he also them. delivered it on the eve of Passover, which is well, a, sure. which is a good time. <laughs> you got to be, you gotta be doing thing. that on Passover. What else are you <laughs> well, talk let's about? keep in mind that this is the presidential administration that managed to not mention Jews in their statement on Holocaust Remembrance Day. I mean, they're <laughs> full of anti-Semites. They've got a Nazi yeah. working for them. They've got Sebastian Gorka, who is I'm actually he's literally a Nazi. He's he's actually a real like connected to the real historical Nazis. He's like actually a member of the, of Nazi parties, like with yeah, awards and everything. And he works for the White House, so it's and, not. And all of this leads me to be extremely surprised that a uh, an apology came later from Spicer. It seemed exactly surprised. like the kind of thing that they do all the time, which is uh, yeah. say a bunch of horrible shit and then not apologize for it. This is something we were discussing earlier, and I I'm not surprised. I mean, I think part of it was the way it went down. So, you know, he, Spicer came, you know, marching out all Melissa McCarthy style, you know, <laughs> and, and he really, he, like, he brought up the Hitler thing quite early in the press conference, and he brought it up. It wasn't like, you know, he was set up for it. So this was clearly something he had planned, you know. He, he, he really thought it wanted, was going to be all cool yeah. and like a really strong rhetorical point in his favor. And I think he could probably tell from the reaction of the press corps which, There's a great yeah. gif of April Ryan hearing him say these words where she's like, what? Yeah. You know, like you can just see yeah. her face where she's like, she's like, hold on, did I just hear the dumbest thing I've ever heard? Uh, apparently <laughs> there was an audible gasp in, yeah. among the press corps. But he could probably the, the tell from that reaction. transformed into a gasp chamber. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> that was a good one. Excuse me, yeah. gasp center. Yes, right. <laughs> You might no, even refer spicy, to it. As I don't a, think that, that Spicy is one of the anti-Semites. That place is full of anti-Semites, but no, I don't I think, think he's, he's one of them. He's really much more of a moron. He's a huge moron. But, but and also, so the, and the Andrew, this to your point, like it, it, this was a, a situation where it's one thing to do a calculated slight against the quote-unquote globalists, but it's another thing to totally fail to deliver the message that your boss wants delivered. I think Trump was looking for Spicy to say, Trump is very strong, and he did this strong thing to this really bad guy. Who's, who's even worse than Hitler. Who's even worse than Hitler. But instead, what we're all talking about now is what a dumb idiot Sean Spicer is. Well, and, you know, he, he tried to clarify several times. Or five times. But even, well, like, the during time, the press yeah. conference, they, he was given an opportunity by the press corps. They basically said... Can you just explain what you meant? And he tried to Basically, explain. they were like, why don't you take that one again? Yeah. <laughs> and he did it even worse. It was the second time that he talked about the Holocaust, right, that was centers, the Holocaust I think. Center. Yeah, it was. It was. So I think that after 
he stuck his foot in his mouth multiple times. I think it was sort of incumbent on him to try to clean it up. Because it wasn't just a one-off. Well, the story I... wasn't playing out the way, like I was saying. I think it was clear that he want, he, he was intending to hit one trajectory, and he, he completely biffed it, like 180 degrees. And so, you know, Andrew, you're asking, why did he apologize? I think there's... Partly, I think he felt bad because what he said was so stupid, and he doesn't really, <laughs> and he didn't. He he like in, he doesn't actually believe the Holocaust was a silly trifle not to be worried about, but also because he was he had pushed every, the whole media narrative way off message, and it was he was trying to. Did you see the interview with him where they were like, "Do you feel like your job is in danger?" And he sort of stammers. And then he's like, he's like, well, I made a mistake. Everybody makes mistakes, and I'm yeah. just doing the best I can. And I was like, I'm oh, man. spicy. Well, you right, should quit. It, it, he it should had, quit. It had become a big distraction. Yes, it still is. Right. I mean, it still is, but it was it was really dominating the news cycle in a massive way. And I think the only way for them to try to uh, start to get it off the news cycle was for him to apologize. Every element of it too is bad. Like you could, for example, just this is just one example of the way in which him making that comparison draws inferences he would have. He, no, he doesn't want anyone thinking about what's our refugee policy with regard to Syrian refugees right now, and then what was our refugee policy during the Holocaust, and how do we feel about about how that looks historically? Right, like that's just one. It's like Spicer, mm-hmm. do not bring up the Holocaust because you'll have people saying things like, "We should be accepting Syrian refugees because one of the great mistakes we made was not accepting Jewish refugees." It's it's a general rule of public relations that you should not bring the Holocaust up in any scenario other than just to simply say how horrible it was. You should just ask yourself, "What would the ADL want me to do right now?" Yeah, and the answer is never. Don't I'm, do whatever you're going to do. Don't do it. I mean, it's literally up there with not invading Russia during winter. I pretty much never invade Russia is a good rule. Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's basically true. It's all as you start saying it's always winter. <laughs> yeah, that too. I think in certain parts of Russia that probably is literally accurate. So let's see. Did we fin- did we have we hit everything we need to hit White House in disarray? This is what happens when you're a total idiot and you just don't hire any. Also, they haven't staffed like way more than half of the positions. I they've I'm... successfully deconstructed the administrative. They, state. They're not even going to be able to conduct the Easter egg roll yeah. annual. <laughs> this is true. No, they're going to blow that completely. Well, he, I mean, honestly, can you imagine Trump at the Easter egg roll? I mean, he would make children cry. He's um he's terrifying, but like. It's just emblematic of how they can't even they can't even like put on a party for children. Well, and there's also no way that he would waste a Sunday or or whatever day it is doing an Easter egg roll when he could be flying to Florida to play golf. I don't even want to get into the golf thing. I'm just saying. Did you guys see the report that he's on pace to um, to spend more in under a year on uh, security related travel costs than Obama did during eight years? He's I been on pace that. to do that for a while. Yeah, yeah. But it's fine because he's white, so it's not a, it's not bad. It's yeah, just, it's business golf. Yeah, he's golfing for business, but he can't discuss that business because it's very important and presidential. Yes, absolutely. I feel like we've made it. We've we've made our point with this section of our, of the show that Trump <laughs> Trump is a poor manager 
who has chosen poor people to work around him, and they're doing a poor job. Do, do you think that he was playing golf with President Xi when President Xi explained to him oh my God. the <laughs> complexity of North Korea? And, You're trying to uh, kill me, right? Where this is like a this has become a <laughs> recurring theme with Trump, where he he learned he like. He makes Who it would have thought he that it could be so like, complicated? He's like, hey, you know, I spent 10 minutes with President Xi Jinping, and it turns out North Korea is really complicated. Like, who knew? And I'm like, everybody knew. Everybody. Everybody. There it's are... that picture of him with his head in his hands after talking to Obama for like 15 minutes right after he won. Yeah, he's like, what did I get myself into? <laughs> yeah. I can't find the quote, oh, but it was it was he, he focused a lot on how delicious and and wonderful the chocolate cake was that they were eating. I mean, they weren't playing golf, unless he had he had like a golf slice where he was like, oh, you know what? I'm I got a sweet tooth here at the tenth hole. I need a big piece well, of chocolate. You know, he's cake. using a golf cart, so if he, if he oh needs yeah, a I snack, he's using then... like a golf palanquin. <laughs> uh, a beautiful, what... a beautiful piece of chocolate cake. Yeah, what, yeah, what Mike is referring to there is actually a. <laughs> an equally hideous story um, about when he informed President Xi of China about the serious strike. And uh, he explained during his interview on Fox that he did so over a beautiful piece of chocolate cake. This is our president. Why does he, who else has he taken to Mar-a-Lago? Because he took, he took okay, Shinzo so Abe this, there. Right. So that if we want to be serious for a second, uh, this this is not an accident. So like people have been making fun of the fact that, um, that this was going on in Mar-a-Lago, but I would actually guess that this is something that the Chinese insisted on. Um, because well, of Japan got to go yeah, to Mar-a-Lago. They need, it's, it's important for them to have parity with Japan, um, and to be seen as equals and that, you know, neither one of them is one upping the other in terms of, uh, what they get to do, and you know, getting to go to Trump's you know special retreat is is you know like a, a, a big deal. And so, except it looks like a gross, like glitzy. It's hideous. The Trump estate. It's the exact sort of thing that would play it's really bold well. Bold and brassy. Um, oh yeah. I mean, it's funny. I was thinking about how if I'm Shinzo Abe, I'm like I would be really worried right now because. We're like their allies, whereas if I'm Xi Jinping, I'm having a great time because the United States is suddenly being run by a crazy idiot. Um, yeah, and I, I, I mean, this is something that we could discuss for <laughs> quite some time as well. Um, this I, is not on our outline. No, so I, I, I've I would, taken I would actually encourage here. people to listen to one of the three excellent episodes this week from the Pod Save the World podcast with Tommy Vitor, um, uh, and in particular the the one on um, on relations with China, um, which goes into this in a fair amount of detail, and I found uh, really useful and educational. Speaking of, I can't think of a you know. Speaking of, I don't know where we're segueing to. I'm not sure. How's everybody staying <laughs> yeah. sane? Right, we're at the end of the. We've yeah. hit the end of the outline, right? Do we need to? No, no, we're good. We're good. We're good. Andrew, want to stammer for a few minutes before and come up with something? Andrew's usually the star of this portion. Yeah, it's true. But he stammers for a little while first. I like so to stammer. Like Hugh Grant. It, it helps like me think of things, except Hugh also Grant. I can't think and talk at the same time. So it's sort of... Well, Mike, how are you staying sane? <laughs> 
Mike is um, not great at staying sane. No, I mean, I think for me... I don't know, Julia Yaffe was getting interviewed by someone once, and they were like, how are you getting through this? Um, and she talked about how she just has, like, a cloak of cynicism and humor. And so I think I'm that's the phase I'm at now, where I'm just complaining about stuff and making cracking jokes about it. Because the reality of what's happening is extremely bad. Dark humor is always a good coping mechanism. Yeah, so I think I'm, you know, I'm doing that. Andrew? I'm sort of on that train, too. Um, I do think... Yeah, you know, it worries me. <laughs> maybe the opposite of staying sane. It worries me somewhat that I'm thinking of that that things have become a new normal. Um, whereas the the goal of resistance is to really continue to deny this its status as normal. Um, but it is a reality we have to live with for at least the time being. So I'm that's, you know, humor can get us through that. And at least, uh, at least it's going very poorly for them. They're making comedy easy. Well, that's a good reminder, Andrew, that, that we can't accept it as the new normal. That it, and it's incumbent on us not to uh, allow ourselves to feel that way. Right, and I feel myself doing it, but I'm also I'm looking forward to um, this is a better one. I'm looking forward to the the upcoming marches this month. Yeah, um, there's one there's one this weekend, and then the the science march uh, the following weekend. Something uh, like sure. that. This, uh, yeah, this weekend is it's centered around because it's tax tax day coming it's up. It's tax day, so it's get it's release his taxes. Um. There could still be some really interesting information in those taxes. There could. We got to get the taxes. Um, so I would say that I'm staying sane almost exclusively at the moment uh, due to the start of the baseball season. That's been really big for me. I'm trying to think of a way to get us to like a humorous outro. Um, any of those quotes? Chocolate cake. I was sitting at the table. We had finished dinner. <laughs> yeah. We're now having dessert. And we had the most beautiful piece of chocolate cake that you've ever seen. And President Xi was enjoying it. That's the quote you're thinking of? Trump said, before telling interviewer Maria Bartiromo, he was told the strike was ready to go. So what, what, so what happens is I said, we've just launched 59 missiles heading to Iraq. Incorrectly identifying the country he was striking. I mean, I think it speaks for itself. And on that note, thanks for listening to Sanity Check. Make sure to join us next week. And if you liked what you heard, you can subscribe at iTunes, the Google Play Store, or at sanitycheckpod.com. In the meantime, keep resisting and persisting. Do the chocolate cake again. I was sitting at the table. We had finished dinner. We're now having dessert. And we had the most beautiful piece of chocolate cake that you've ever seen. And President Xi was enjoying it, Trump said. Trump added that he told Xi that the United States had, quote, just fired 59 missiles heading to Iraq, incorrectly identifying the country he was striking.